Hi, this is Christy Sadramelli. I'm a pediatric pulmonologist at Johns Hopkins. Um, this is our second episode of the Pediatrics Assembly podcast. Today we will be interviewing one of my mentors, Elizabeth Matsui. Um, she is a professor of pediatrics, epidemiology, and environmental health sciences at Johns Hopkins. And she directs a research program here focused on the effects of environmental exposures on childhood asthma. And her work has really been instrumental to our understanding of the role of mouse allergen, particularly in the inner city population in Baltimore um, and the role that plays in pediatric asthma. She's a practicing pediatric allergist and immunologist. She's also vice chair for research in the Department of Pediatrics, and she co-hosts a podcast um, with Dr. Roger Pang um, called The Effort Report, which I encourage you to check out. Um, has lots of great um, academic topics and very fun to listen to as well. So welcome. Elizabeth. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to be on the other end. <laughs> um, and it's funny for me, a normal listener, to now be interviewing. So why don't we just start off? Um, I wanted to hear a little bit about how you first became interested in the indoor environment as it relates to asthma. So this is an interesting story. So I'm a, an example of someone who had a meandering path from residency to fellowship. So there were there's four and a half years between when I finished residency and started fellowship. And I specifically started my allergy immunology fellowship because I wanted to learn more about the indoor environment, but more importantly about uh, what were the kind of clinical research and epidemiologic research methods that could be applied in order to to study that problem more. So when I finished, so I finished residency in 1996 and thought that I wanted to be a pediatric hematologist oncologist. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And my soon-to-be husband was a medical student who had matched for internal medicine at University of Washington in Seattle. So I moved up there and decided I would spend two years doing laboratory-based research and some kind of moonlighting on the side, and that the laboratory-based research was going to focus on oncology issues. And we had to, and my husband was going to apply for an adult oncology fellowship. So I did that so we would be, the brilliant plan was we were going to be aligned in terms of our timeline, right? So you make these plans and... (laughs) They, they end up not working. So sometimes <laughs> planning ahead is that far ahead is, is <laughs> right. doesn't work out. So he um, we had to apply for fellowship more than 18 months ahead of when we started. So I'd only been in the lab for a few months. I wasn't a big fan of it, but, you know, it was new to me. And we both got fellowships here at Hopkins. So he had a fellowship in adult oncology, and then I was offered one in pediatric hemonc. And about nine months before I was – going to start I had you know spent about a year in the lab and I realized I really didn't like it and I was I was a mess in the lab too (laughs) because I would never pipette things precisely (laughs) enough oh you know in a repeated manner and um but I so I didn't know what I wanted to do and I thought really what I want to do is something is more proximal to the patient and to the health problem and in oncology back then and this is less the case now if you want to do clinical research you needed to work your way up through kind of the ranks to become a part of, and I don't know whether it's called Pediatric Oncology Group now or COG or POG, yeah. but because they merged at some point, and in order to design the clinical trials. Otherwise, you know, you would be a site PI, which is great and you do important work, 
but I really wanted to be the one to be able to kind of pose the questions. So I bailed out of my fellowship. (laughs) Before it started. Before it started. Wow. And I had a conversation with the division chief with a screaming colicky baby in the background. (laughs) And I just had to (laughs) shut the door because it was a very, you know, awkward conversation. Wait, your baby. My baby. baby. No, yeah, no, no, my baby. My (laughs) baby because I I was just finishing up maternity leave at that time. And so we moved here. I had to find a job, and I became interested because I had got a job at a community hospital with a family medicine residency program, and we were assigned a school clinic, and I kind of molded it into an asthma clinic. I wrote a grant for some intramural funds from the health system for someone to do home visits and assess the environment. I started collecting data, and this was shortly after a paper about cockroach allergen exposure and its relationship with asthma morbidity had come out in the New England Journal. So these sort of things happened together. I reached out to someone in the allergy immunology division here in the Department of Pediatrics, and he kept saying, well, you should really do a fellowship. And I kept saying, well, I I don't know. (laughs) So he eventually convinced me to do a fellowship. and that's So I came to do a fellowship not because I thought that, like the typical kind of personal statement, that people write before a fellowship is, you know, I love taking care of patients with these sorts of health conditions or problems. I came to fellowship because I had identified what I thought was an important problem and felt ill-equipped to study it and then, you know, sort of disseminate whatever findings um, that I had from the research. Oh, interesting. So you kind of came to the research first and then... Right. And I wasn't, I mean, yes, I was trying to do research, but... It was a pretty pathetic attempt at doing research, you know, which was and, – and why really the fellowship. And um, I also got a master's in epidemiology here during my fellowship training. Yeah. And that was probably the single most important thing that I did for my career. Great. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I got a master's in uh, clinical investigation here too during fellowship, and it makes a huge difference. I agree. Um, so now as – fast forward a little bit in time, I guess – you first saw the thing about cockroaches. Um, really, I associate your research with, you know, helping us realize that mouse is, is even more of a problem than cockroach. Correct me if I'm wrong. They may both have some issues in pediatric asthma, particularly in a city like ours in Baltimore. But did you expect it was going to be mouse, or did you just kind of find that along the way? Or I, I stumbled upon it, okay. actually. And, um, and And one caveat before I get into this is, I think there's a distinction between um, what we say about individual patient care and what we say about a population. And so for Baltimore, when we look across the population of kids, we do not see much of an effect of cockroach allergen exposure and sensitization on asthma morbidity. We see a huge effect with mouse. And I'll go back and tell you kind of how this all unfolded. But what I always try to point out in my talks, especially to a clinical audience, is that doesn't mean that when I have an individual patient in front of me, that I don't worry about for that individual the role of cockroach. Sure. This is really through a public health lens of thinking about, you know, what are the major environmental drivers that are modifiable in a population. So if you were going to try to design um, some sort of approach to really reduce morbidity in that population, what what would be the things you would target on a po- as a public health or population level intervention? And that would be mouse in Baltimore. But you wouldn't ignore cockroach when you're evaluating a patient. Got it. So I stumbled upon it because – so when I first started fellowship, 
um, my mentor was trying to understand whether you could, how you could sample the environment and measure allergen in the environment. So there was a well-established immunoassay for a variety of indoor allergens, but the standard protocol was to vacuum up dust. And so that would, it sounds trivial, but that could take five minutes just of vacuuming. And um, whereas if you could just wipe a counter or something, you could measure a surface that doesn't have a lot of dust and you can do it very quickly. So I was doing wipes. And this was way back when at a time where, you know, you might do pilot work by wiping your own counter or, you know, floor or something (laughs) like that just to develop the methods. This was not anything that was ever published. So I had friends who were other physicians, and some of them lived in Baltimore City. Um, And one of the things that I noticed, so close friends of mine, both of them physicians, lived in an immaculate home in Canton, which is sort of a more kind of... Uh, up-and-coming mm-hmm. neighborhood, but it is in Baltimore yeah, City with row water. homes, right? Yep, and they're, homes. so they're shared walls, and these are homes that are a hundred years old or older. And I remember talking to her, and I said, "Well, you've got a whole heck of a lot of mouse allergen, even on your kitchen <laughs> counter." God, <laughs> you're not allowed in my home. <laughs> I'm scared <laughs> right, right. what we might find. Right. <laughs> She's she was great, so she she laughed about it, and I actually didn't. I mean, I thought that we thought it was sort of this kind of funny thing and I didn't actually pursue it and in retrospect you should pay attention to things like that (laughs) and then so eventually um, I came up with a fellow project several of them but they all involve secondary data analysis of uh, data sets that had been assembled that included exposure indoor environmental sampling and asthma morbidity data and so during fellowship so then I went and looked to see well what's the prevalence rate of mouse sensitization so for allergic disease you need to be sensitize or have IgE to that allergen for it to really uh, be clinically relevant for you. And um, so we found out the prevalence of mouse sensitization among kids who are having exacerbations, say, coming through the ER here at Hopkins and other similar cities was about 50%. So half of them are sensitized. Um, Then we looked to understand the relationship between exposure and morbidity. And the first population I looked in was a preschool population and there was strikingly strong associations between mouse allergen exposure and ER visits and hospitalizations sure. um, among this preschool population who was mouse sensitized. And these were all, you know, we actually had a lot of trouble publishing that paper. Really? Interestingly enough. And it had, you know, longitudinal data. Um, wow. And so it got published in 2006 and around the same time and I can't remember the order that all these were published but we also I had um, access to air samples that had been collected from bedrooms of a different population but similar an old school age population and we found mouse allergen detectable in 90 percent of the air samples we collected from bedrooms wow. and so if you imagine you know half the kids coming through the emergency room in this city are sensitized to mouse, and virtually 100% of them are, you know, breathing in mouse allergen while they sleep. Um, and we find high concentrations in bed dust that we sample as well. Sure. And that kind of, you know, th- that was sort of the basis, the uh, the observation. And I forgot one other. There was another observation because we looked in a suburban population. The concentrations of mouse allergen in Baltimore City homes of kids with asthma are about a thousand-fold greater than the concentration. Yes, I have read that. So interesting. Yeah, so we have kind of this convergence of super high exposure uh, and um, 
common sensitization in a population that has high asthma morbidity and all of those things seem to be linked. And we don't see those sorts of associations on a population level with cockroach in yeah. Baltimore. It's interesting. So if you live in the suburbs, your exposures may be lower, but it may st- you may still be sensitized. Do we do you study that too, or is it mainly just focused on our inner city population? So my main focus is on low-income urban populations. We know something, I've done some work in um, other populations, and we do know that about nationwide, about 80% of homes have detectable mouse allergen in them. Wow. But the concentrations are far, far lower than what we see in Baltimore City. Sure. Baltimore, similar to other places like Philadelphia, New York, right. some areas of Boston, right. and some older you know, uh, communities and cities in the Midwest as well. Okay. So it's detectable yes. in 80% of homes nationwide, but the concentrations are much, much lower. Okay. And in terms of the prevalence of mouse sensitization, it's very low. Like on a national, you know, nationwide population of non-asthmatics, you know, it's less than 5%. It's like 2% or so. Okay. Among asthmatics in one population in suburban Maryland, uh, it was around 13% or so. Okay. So there's a difference in both sensitization prevalence and concentration of, of mouse allergen exposure sure. in low-income urban. Now, is this something that we see on the West Coast as well, or do we have any data from Europe or any other places? So the West Coast, so there's much less mouse allergen on the West okay. Coast. And the Inner City Asthma Consortium, which is an NIH-sponsored multi-center consortium, has an, published a paper that has a nice figure in it where it shows the distribution of mouse allergen. And I think they had eight different centers, and there was clearly you know, a group of cities, and they're, they're basically the ones that I talked about that are, tend to be in the Midwest and the Northeast that have high mouse allergen mm-hmm. levels, and cities in the West Coast like Seattle have very low mouse allergen levels. The Europeans have had some interest in this, and I, I actually I had to get, I gave a talk in Sweden a couple years ago, uh-huh. and um, it was interesting because you could tell that it was such a foreign concept to them that um, they the way I was introduced is well if this is happening in the United States it's coming here like we were <laughs> we were at the, so you need to pay attention to this but yeah people who've looked for rodent you know allergens mouse allergen and mouse sensitization in Europe have not come up with a whole lot the patterns are more similar to what we see in you know suburban US so it's not that they don't have mice yeah. but it's not the same. So it's a very U.S. specific problem. Okay, interesting, interesting. Well, I could talk about this mouse stuff all day. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just have so much information. Every time we've ever talked about it, I've learned something. But you know, maybe our listeners don't want to hear just not, about that. Right. <laughs> so I am interested. Well, maybe sort of related, maybe not. Kind of what is your group working on now at this point in time? So there's several things we have going on. So we just wrapped up a multi-center clinical trial to, that was looking at the effect of an intensive, professionally delivered pest management program versus right. education alone. And that paper is under review. Oh, good. And um, we are hoping that it'll be out in press in March. So everyone Wonderful. can stay tuned. Yeah. Um, so we're very excited about that. That was in partnership with uh, Wanda Pipitanical at Boston Children's and um, Matt Perzanowski, who's at Columbia. Great. Um, so we have a study that we launched about two years ago, uh, two years ago, and 
I should back up and talk about the rationale. So one of the things that I think um, happens a lot, and I know ATS has an environmental interest section, yes. as does the Quad AI, yes. is I think a lot of times the, the groups doing the environmental-focused research often uh, don't speak in the same language that people who are interested in mechanisms or drug development speak sure. in, and that oftentimes people who are doing the environmental research are speaking to each other. And right. it can be very frustrating to not sort of get traction from uh, the larger medical community in terms of thinking about how our under better understanding of the environment might affect practice guidelines and sure, yeah. uh, those sorts of things. And one and another pitfall is how our health system is set up. If insurance companies are not in a position to really pay for or not going to pay for pest management or, or any sure. of those sorts of environmental resources and support and materials, um, it's also hard to get the larger medical community to pay attention to these things because there's a fair, you know, I think – skepticism about, you know, well, you can identify all these problems, but we have no way to pay for them. Sure. So I sort of was thinking about how, you know, what are, what are the studies that we need to do to kind of bridge that gap? And one of the things I think is that will be really important is to assign or ascribe an inhaled corticosteroid dose equivalency to an environmental intervention. Oh, yeah. And Interesting. the answer, it could be in the end, we don't know, that, you know, an environmental intervention is worth nothing. It doesn't, yeah. you know, reduce your uh, controller medication needs. Or it, we could say this is the equivalent of low-dose ICS. And then you can start talking in the same yeah. language. And you can sure. say, well, low-dose ICS costs whatever, $2,000 yeah. a year or what have you. And this is how much this intervention costs. And now, now we can start talking about... How do we make decisions about what to pay for, you know, in terms of our healthcare system and, and in terms of our public health system? And, and sure. this is especially timely because, although I think it's very uncertain now with the recent election, <laughs> sure, sure. but with the Affordable Care Act, um, there has been a huge movement to newer payment models for healthcare. And yes. these payment models allow for paying for things like environmental interventions. Yeah, that so keep this, you healthy, exactly, keep you away from medical exactly. care. So this study is a randomized control trial of uh, guidelines-based medication titration alone versus guidelines-based medication titration plus a multifaceted, individually tailored environmental control intervention. Okay, great. And the primary outcome is their final treatment step at six months. Okay, great. So we're just about halfway through recruiting for that study. Awesome. And then the second study is sort of along the same lines, which is I think um, there is some fair skepticism that um, we can't really lower, you know, exposure to these things sufficiently to really yeah. have a clinical effect in some communities because the state sure. of housing is so poor. Yeah. So I think we, about that a lot right. in my patients. <laughs> right, right. And there's a whole other educational yeah. component. So there are lots of people here interested in, in behavior, health behaviors and how you influence them. But um, So one, one thing that people have talked about doing for a long time is, well, if people move to better housing, do, you know, are, there, are their exposures lower in that housing? Right. And is that associated with better asthma outcomes? And it's a very hard study to do because you you can't 
move people as an investigator yourself. <laughs> yeah, so I right. can't even imagine the budget that you would right. try to justify to whatever yeah. funding agency. But there is um, a housing nonprofit that's a housing mobility program um, in Baltimore, the Baltimore Housing Mobility Program, and they, um, uh, the clients who participate in that program enroll because they're eligible for housing vouchers that are, you know, federal HUD housing yes, vouchers. Yes, But they spend about uh, some time in a counseling program where they are shown housing and opportunity neighborhoods. They get counseling about you know, how to save up for, you know, uh, safety deposit, deposit on the how to, on their apartment, um, how they think through how they're going to get use transportation to get to their jobs in the city. So after this whole counseling process, they then get their voucher, and the um, stipulation is they have to move to an opportunity neighborhood. Okay. So we, we are enrolling kids with asthma and following them through this program and oh, measuring, taking environmental samples and assessing their asthma when they're in the old home and then after they move for a, about a year when they're in the new home. So is it, are they still in the city, just a different part of the city? So there's or? some opportunity neighborhoods in the city. Okay. The, um, and many of them, probably most of them, are in the surrounding counties. Okay, interesting. And so we just launched that one very recently. Great. So we have small numbers. But that, we par- the other partner in this is um, a health policy partner um, who's a faculty member in general internal medicine who studies the effect of housing policy on health. And so you can imagine how the findings of this study might start reframing how we think about public health management and how uh, housing policy, which has not been viewed as a health policy tool, may be a tool to address health, especially health disparities. Right. And along similar lines, I'm trying I might say this wrong. They recently passed some regulations about public housing regarding smoking rules. Right. I don't know all the details about that. So smoking has now been banned in banned public housing. From all public housing across the country, right? I believe it's across I think that's the country. what I heard. So Boston I think it had done it a while yeah. back. Yeah. And um but yes. So and, something along those lines, you know, maybe there'd be more guidelines or support or right yeah I actually you know talk about this all the time with my patients and I'm sure many of the asthma patients that I see don't even realize they're exposed to to mice but some of them do and particularly people living in poverty or having a very hard time finding alternate housing I was just working with a social worker the other day and I actually made the comment this is probably more important than the medications now I'm just saying that apart from data but just my impression of this patient right you know this getting a different house is going to be really important and as clinicians and as social workers you know we don't have a lot of great ways to address this right now right in the current system right and the wait lists for vouchers are either closed or very long and it's incredibly hard and there are differences also between whether you're in public housing or subsidized housing through vouchers as well so public housing has systems at least where you can request you know place a work order to request you know uh, professional pest management help etc and then if you live in privately owned housing that's subsidized with a voucher there are legal means you know where the family can um try to hold the the landlord accountable for the condition of the home if it's unhealthy. But those are very difficult to navigate, and they're particularly difficult to navigate if you're trying to hold down two jobs. Sure. Maybe you have a high school degree. Yeah. um, And what's required requires time and resources and 
Um, and so maybe that, your kids already have like tons of doctor appointments and right, right. possibly ER visits and things like that too on top of it. Right. Um, all right, great. Well, shifting gears a little bit, um, you're a very experienced mentor here. We've only recently begun working together. Um, and you have, are you currently under a K-24 or you had it in the past? I have one now. Okay. And that's a mentorship award from the NIH, correct? So it's, it's called a mid-career award and it is supposed to, and it varies a little bit from institute to institute in terms of you know, the operation of who gets funded, I think. Um, but generally speaking, it is protects your time to mentor, but it is also intended to be a vehicle by which you can extend your research program as well. So cool. um, there is a career development component to it as well. Okay, great. So what kind of skills are, I, I think, oh, she knows everything. Oh. <laughs> what are you working on right now what am I for working career right development? Now? So yeah. um, this so my K-24 proposal dovetailed nicely with um, a mentee of mine who's in the school, faculty in the School of Public Health in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences here, who is, um, studies um, microbes in animals and the oh, environment. Yes. I know who you're talking about. And mm-hmm. um, so Megan Davis. Yes, yes. And so she, at the same time that I sort of wrote my K-24, around the same time she wrote a K award a yes. K grant that got awarded, yes. and um, so attached. So she is taking samples that we are collecting in these studies that I've described, and is evaluating their microbial content. And we want to understand, you know, how microbes in the environment. And she's a veterinarian too, right? And how that kind of nexus of the animals, including the pests, the mice and the cockroach contribute to the environmental microbiome and how right, that might right. affect the microbiome of the kids with asthma and how that might affect their susceptibility to exacerbations and um, other you know, harmful sort of consequences of asthma. Cool, cool. So in terms of like where you see the field going, and you're an allergist, but very overlapping with a lot of the pulmonologists who are going to be listening to this and me because of asthma, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you see the field shifting more toward or you probably hope that there'll be a growing recognition of the you know how we can actually modify or be more aware of the environment in terms of like helping our patients rather than just saying we know it's bad yeah and and I think you're exactly right the caveat (laughs) is that I probably represent a minority opinion here (laughs) um so when you look at uh, asthma or similar disease through a public health lens um and especially pediatric asthma, um, almost all of it can be controlled with the medications we have available. Right. They are far from perfect. You know, I, I recently had a patient who was on high-dose inhaled corticosteroids plus long-acting beta mm-hmm. agonist, and um, he, I, we're getting him evaluated for ad- adrenal suppression. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm suggesting that there are no side effects. <laughs> right, right, drugs, right, right, right. And even though there was a recent paper that was very reassuring about LABAs, I think the people are not 100% comfortable with LABAs. Agreed. Yet. I see that. So the medications are not perfect, but they work incredibly well mm-hmm. in, you know, the, almost all kids with asthma. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ones that they don't work well in, you know, adherence, I think, yep. is a big issue. The environment, I think, is a big yes. issue. And then I think there's a very small group of kids 
who have some other phenotype of asthma. Yes. But they are a very small group of kids. And yeah. I, I actually be curious because you, yeah. I, mean, I see the allergic kids because that's my right, referral right, right. base. But right. I, would, would you agree? I agree. I agree. And in terms of like what we even call asthma, you know, that's, you know, we won't even get into it. But like there's probably multiple phenotypes and maybe further on down the road we won't even call everyone right. asthma. Right. Um, but I definitely think there is another severe phenotype that's not allergic that we do see in pediatrics and adult too. Right. But they're very small. Yeah, right? I agree with you. And I feel like more kids um, respond to medications. Right. Yeah, if they're actually taking them, which we know adherence is a right. huge issue. Right. And the at least in this population where I'm working, the environment's a huge issue. I think – it is to some degree for everyone, but, you right. know, it may be worse in inner city, right, right. you know, so if, impoverished settings. Right. So if you take the entire budget, let's say, you know, it, we'll do a you know, thought experiment. Sure. And you wanted to divide it up in terms of where you wanted to allocate that money, you know, I think I would sort of – I would pose it as a question. Should you put 90% of that budget into drug development? <laughs> and 10% into the environment. I mean, and it would be interesting to actually take a look at that and see how it's divided. Right, because right. that is a disconnect right, right. from where the needs are. You know, and so my right. view of asthma is we know how to make it better right. in the overwhelming majority of yeah. kids. And that does not mean that we don't need to be trying to help the other kids too. Right. But boy, we could make a huge dent in asthma morbidity oh, yeah. if we focused on you know, appropriate controller medication prescription systems to support uh, kids filling their prescriptions yes. and taking their meds. You can do directly observed therapy in schools, uh, yes. which has been shown to make a difference, and by targeting the environment. And so if you can do those things, but you need resources, and, you, and, and there are many questions that need to be answered about you know, how to implement those things, but we know those things work, right. but we're not really doing them. Yeah. I'm hoping I'm hoping that the I don't know if it's I guess it's the reimbursement models need to shift a little bit just because we don't even have options to do a lot of things that we could do that would really help people and maybe we'll get some policy on our side over time not just in public housing but really overall would help other kids too exactly um okay well um I'm not sure how long it's been 30 minutes okay one more question, okay. and then we'll go to the lightning round. Okay. <laughs> um, so do you have any advice for young junior investigators? These could be fellows who are listening, um, junior faculty, anyone who's junior who is sort of working with patients and has found an area of interest and wants to pursue it. Just in general, do you have any advice? Just thoughts. Oh, yeah. wow. So um, find out, find a problem that you feel passionate about. And I think a lot of times people run into these in clinic and they sort of shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, <laughs> no one's adherent. Right, right. But, they, but, they're, but, but then it's hard to latch on to that almost subconscious thought and say, well, okay, how can I fix this problem? Right. And how can I study the problem and come up with solutions? And every day, if you're in clinic, you should be encountering those sorts of issues. Yes. And they're problems that are coming up in front of you all the time. Um, you have to then have very good mentorship in order to identify the problems that, you know, you can quickly kind of get traction on right. um, as a junior person with maybe limited resources. So the second piece of advice is to find a good mentor, and I think that's 
can be hard. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times good mentors are very busy. Right. A lot of times um, I think, you know, and this takes experience is, is figuring out who gives you the best advice about what area. Right. I have many mentors. Right. You have a whole team. Like yes. I have I have many mentors yeah. as well. And yeah. I learn over time that, you know, I think when I was training, I would think, well, I could go ask this person about study design. And now in retrospect, I realize, why would I ask that person? That person <laughs> didn't have any formal training in study design. Right. Whereas, you know, I had someone who I knew, you know, who was an epi, uh, epidemiology methods person. That's a person I should ask right. and trust. Or... Um, um, so you, you want to, many mentors are not going to say, look, I am not the best person, you know, for this. I'm, I'm good for this or what have you. And so you want to, um, step back and, and think hard about who, who you want to reach out to for different questions. Right. I'm finding that increasingly important as a junior faculty member. I even have someone outside the division that was assigned to me. You guys were talking about this on the effort report, but um, from a different division. And she gives me wonderful career advice, and she has no involvement with my research. So it's good. I don't have time to, like, discuss my research and my career with every single <laughs> research mentor. They're really busy. I mean, right. they, they give me a little career advice. But this person is just a career mentor, and she's outside my division. And even though it was assigned, we've, like, continued on past the assigned period. And hopefully she'll mentor me indefinitely. But it's really super valuable. And I think it's valuable because that person – um, has a different perspective, and they right. are also buffered from whatever politics are going on in your division. Right, right. And that's, that's really critical yeah. to have that person. And the third piece of advice, because I, I could list 10 <laughs> sure. different things, sure. is uh, we recently interviewed Al Somer on our podcast. Yes, great episode. I did hear that one. So that I had so much fun doing that, <laughs> but he wrote a book that's called 10 Lessons of Public Health. Yes. They really are not public health specific. Oh, right. And um, I highly recommend that book to anybody. Um, awesome. Because I think that all of them are pearls about how you pursue um, a path, even actually whether you're doing laboratory-based research, whether you're interested in scholarly work in health policy, whether you want to be a clinical investigator or an epidemiologist. Um, I, it, that book is invaluable, and it is worth, um, you know, and it's a quick read. It's okay, so great. short and to the point. So. I need to check that out, too. I heard you guys talk about it. And actually, that is a great segue to the okay. lightning round because one of my questions was going to be, do you have a book to recommend for us? Oh, <laughs> uh, I think that would be the book. <laughs> That's perfect. For, for sure, yes. Oh, and, you know, <laughs> so I did um, – if you're thinking about writing up data or, or you know, analyzing data and everybody sure. analyzes data, sure. um, that, you know, we have been, you and I have been fortunate that we've taken coursework. Yes, yes. Um, but a lot of times what's hard is maybe you have taken a course in statistics, but trying to apply it to your problem oh, yeah. is tricky. Um, and so I did um, partner with um, Roger Peng, who's my co-host for the Effort Report. Yes. And we wrote a book called The Art of Data Science, but it's about conceptually how do you approach a data analysis and so I have given out it's it's actually downloadable for free on a we oh, nice. e-published it okay um, cool. on a site called lean pub and so it's available for free and it tells you hopefully kind of the process of how people think about analyzing data in order to answer a question 
Oh, great. Wonderful. I'll see if there's a way we can link to that. Would that be okay? It's free. It's yes, online. Yes, okay. Yes, yes. Awesome. I need to look at that too. Okay. Other lightning round questions. Some of these are just for fun. Okay. Coffee or tea? Tea. <laughs> Stata, SAS, or something else? Oh, Stata. I attempted <laughs> to learn R one summer, and then life got too busy. <laughs> I I'm Stata too. I've never R. tried the others though. And here's the last one. You win a lottery, but you have to use, I don't know how much money, just say a lot of money. You have to use the money related to either patients or your research, or maybe both. What would you use it for? Oh, wow. That's a good one. <laughs> um, I would use most of it for research. Yeah. And the reason is, and, and I'll sort of, um, you know, give a concrete example. So, when you and I actually won't give a concrete example I'll give you so when you walk we're in the school of public health at Hopkins when we're recording right now yes. and when you walk into the school of public health there's a sign that says saving lives millions, millions at, at a time. time right yes which i read as 100 millions out of time because mm-hmm. it's a 100 year You're anniversary right 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 <laughs> anyway and and i kind of joke a little bit that yeah. sometimes is it like a dig at the school of medicine you know but <laughs> I have thought that too. Right, right. But, but as wonderful as it is. It is wonderful. <laughs> but I think that um, there is certainly a need to support individual patients, and we need to do that. But the way to have the biggest impact, I mean, like what I think about doing is I, I would be incredibly humbled if this could happen. But let's say 10 years from now, um, you know, there were systems in place in public housing that ensured that mouse allergen levels were, you know, well below a level that we knew caused morbidity, and that there were systems in the um, healthcare payment world that covered sure. these things. So yeah. there was both sort of a public health and a housing and a health system approach that um, really reduced asthma morbidity among an entire community. That would be huge. Yeah. And that takes a ton of resources to get there. Yeah. Well, awesome. That's a great note to end on. Um, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Matsui. It was wonderful talking. And thanks to all our listeners. Um, we will be back with more podcasts this spring. Um, so stay tuned. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks.